Welcome back to Potter's Pockets 14. Now we're starting a new book, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, the third book in the seven book series. And so now we have back with us Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wesley Chance. Welcome back, you two. Hi. Good to be back. Hey, good to be back. Yeah, starting a, starting a new chapter in the book that is our life and a new book in the series, which is Harry Potter. And so we were talking a little bit in the pre-show about the theme of three and one and three equaling one. And of course, we dive into all sorts of symbols and all sorts of historical and mythological systems here. But sort of an interesting one that we run into right in the beginning, uh, connected even by name to the name of, to the chapter of the first book, The Owl Post, are the three owls that we run into and um, uh, that are sent to Harry for his birthday, which was at first the worst birthday he ever had because he didn't even get some socks, which made me think of Dobby, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but there, there, are three, um, there are three owls that are sent by his friends. Um, first Ron, then Hermione, then Hagrid. Uh, and I was wondering whether you thought that that was in order of those close to his heart. And um, if y'all wanted to consider the gifts that they gave and perhaps uh, what's behind those. And, um, and per perhaps even having the background, the fact that we are like three owls gathered with a message bringing to the young heroes that are <laughs> the next generation. Uh, <laughs> all right, so yeah, what did, what did y'all think about those three owls? Uh, Errol, um, what is it? Errol and the Hogwarts, very regal looking owl. And then mm -hmm. Hedwig, who, uh, who seems to have acted on her own volition just to make sure that Harry got a, a present, very Athena-like. Oh yeah. Mm. The, uh, well, he gets the pocket sneakoscope yes. from Ron, right? Which his um, brother claimed did not work while he yeah. was getting snuck up on and having <laughs> bugs poured into his soup. <laughs> right, right. And um, and then from Hermione, he gets the, the kit, right? The broomstick kit. Yes, the um, detailing kit. And he seems like a little more excited about that one. Uh, and then, he, of course, he gets the Monster Book of Monsters from Hagrid, which yes. is awesome. Uh, uh, and then, okay, but then there's another, there's another note from Hogwarts yet about um, Hogsmeade, right? And that's yes. like kind of, a, kind of the opposite of a present because um, he doesn't know quite what to do about getting a parent's signature. Yes. Okay. I really do want to focus on on that and what Hogsmeade means. And uh, for the listeners, I was sending a text making another one of my crazy conspiracy claims about what I think Hogsmeade is. And I'm really eager to get you guys' perspective on that. But uh, I wanted to ask just very quickly about the detailing kit. Because something interesting is that Harry expected just some book. And he doesn't get a book from Hermione. He gets a detailing kit, which indicates that Hermione knows him a lot better than his idea of Hermione knows him. His sort of projection or image of her is that she's so bookish that she'll just want his betterment and want him to be similar to her by giving him a book. But in fact, she shows that she has real depth of character and sort of a mutable or changeable or discerning personality in that she, she sees what Harry loves and she gives him something that helps him to maintain and enjoy and spend time thinking about the thing that he loves. I, I think that this is an instance of the character going beyond another character's perception of them by showing their discerning nature. And that that is very much what Hermione has always been in this series. And that even in her choices of gift, she shows what she is. Um, and I, I'm, I'm just always struck by her sweetness, sort of like when Sherlock Holmes shows concern for Watson. It's always interesting when a great mind shows a great heart like that. Um, and well, I suppose I wonder whether y'all agree, agree with that. And then I, <laughs> we should definitely talk about Hogsmeade and whether it's a, uh, what it's, all it's cracked up to be, I suppose. I mean, um, can, can you guys answer a question for me, I guess? Um, did Hermione's present arrive at Privet Drive because of Hedwig? Or did she mail it through, like, Muggle Post? Um, so is the question that Hedwig in some way... Um, like, yeah, I guess, cause, well, because Errol, Errol brought the present from uh, Egypt. Ron. Yeah. So I guess, 
if there's two things there from Hogwarts, how did the how did her present get get to him? I, I it would be interesting to me if Hedwig brought it. Um, yeah, I don't know I if think, that. I think she did, right? Like her her letter yeah. says she's in France and she's worried about how to send this thing because it's like you know weird and right. magical. Um, but then Hedwig sort oh, of yeah. appears. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I that's in her letter. But I think that that's interesting, right? That, um, I don't know, how would Hedwig know? I mean, Hedwig's magical, right? But this this gift that, I don't know, I, Harry and Hermione have like such an interesting friendship um, that that she gives them this gift. Like, like Alex, your point I think is really well taken that she doesn't buy him something that she would like. She buys him something that he would like. Right. Um, whereas it, it really does seem like Ron bought Harry something that he would like. On the other hand, Ron, or that something that Ron and Harry could share and laugh about. Right. On the other hand, Ron, we have to remember that Ron is also not, I mean, it sort of, it reminds me of like the old widow versus the rich man at the, synagogue and the gospels that like giving from your giving from your need is so much more of a gift and maybe uh then then not that Hermione is super wealthy but this small little thing that maybe is broken though spoiler alert we learn isn't um is a really big deal for Ron um even if he doesn't even if it doesn't appeal to Harry's nature in the same way as Hermione's gift, I just think it's interesting that Hedwig shows up right where Hermione is. Um, that seems significant. Well, and and just the fact that all of this is happening during the course of, or just before, or it's just on the eve of Aunt Marge's visit. So it's a time of some moment. Mm -hmm. And that these three magical signs come. And I, I know I was trying to do something sort of, uh, my biblical attempt was suggesting that these three owls as symbols of wisdom as the animal of Minerva or Athena were representatives of like three wise men or three messages in, uh, in even more abstracted form, three messages which come from a wise person, ideas which come oh, from... Oh, sure. Yeah, I, I think that's, a, that's an interesting image as well. And so three they show up on Harry's birthday, like the three wise men on... Jesus' birthday. Um, I would, I would yeah. love to see that painting of the adoration of the Magi, but, you know, with owls and Harry Potter and, <laughs> and the Monster Book of Monsters instead of Frankenstein. Yeah, vaguely our features on them, perhaps. Um, <laughs> yeah. That'd be but, awesome. <laughs> something, something interesting. Oh, and I, I, know, I know we're trying to get to Hogsmeade, but that's definitely some serious, like, meat, and we're still kind of at appetizers is some about this cover. And we know that I'm all into covers, especially the American covers with pastel coloring. But something interesting is it, it's the first cover that marks a theme, and, but also this speaks, I think, to your point, Sarah, which is building on mine, which is that Hermione is the girl on this cover writing with Harry on this griffin. This hippogriff, we'll find out that it's called, but it looks like a griffin to us. And so it's just very interesting that their relationship does seem to be forming and deepening in some way. Not only are they mythologically represented here, but even in just the small acts of kindness that she perpetrates towards him. I wonder to what extent, and I don't like thinking about the intention of the author that much. At this point, she was being considered more for a romantic lead for Harry than Ginny, even though Ginny was so clearly uh, set up for it in the last book. But um, something else interesting about the theme of the covers is that this is the third the cover on which Harry has a semi-active, semi-passive role on top of a magical object or creature, or rather grasping hold of a magical uh, object or creature. The, the broom in the first one, where he's looking sort of confused and out of his element and catching a snitch. The phoenix in the second one, where he's clearly getting pulled out of trouble with a bunch of snakes around him. He's getting pulled up actively. Now third, he's, he's smiling with Hermione behind him, though the hair, her hair color is sort of chestnut, so chestnut that it could be seen as red at first. So it could be Jenny, uh, at least according to your first look. And they're writing a smiling looking hippogriff or griffin upwards. And so I thought that was sort of interesting too, that um, 
we, we have sort of uh, ourselves a psychopomp on the cover of each of these texts who delivers us just like Harry Potter into the, uh, the magical world. Um, mm. So like the Griffin brings us into the pages of Harry Potter, which takes us into the walls of Hogwarts, which um, transports us so that we can see the great narrative or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just starting to see this, uh, this, I'm just developing this hypothesis. Um, well, that seems right to me that there's a kind of progression there from cover to cover. Um, and it also, I mean, it does tie in nicely with the idea of the, the owls being the kind of the first, um, that, that similar idea of like transfer of uh -huh. transportation of, of moving you from one world to another. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, so you brought up, uh, so you, we brought up the third gift or the fourth gift rather that seems sort of not like a gift, the uh, opportunity to go to Hogsmeade. So this is very interesting because we have this sort of theme of uh, development within a school superstructure here, right? Uh, for the first time, Harry, as mentioned, is going to this place called St. Brutus's. And Brutus is, of course, the betrayer, one of the betrayers, him and Cassius of, of Caesar, so says Dante, who has two of them in the, spoiler alert, mouths of Satan at the bottom of hell. Um, and so St. Brutus's seems like hardly a saint at all. And so it's a place for incurable boys. Um, but at the same time, it is actual school, unless, of course, the uh, conspiracy theory about this all being a delusion in Harry Potter's head um, is that he can now go to Hogsmeade if he gets a parent signature. And going to Hogsmeade is like a fun privilege and a fun thing you get to go do where you get to drink putter beer, see the Howling Shack, and go to Zonko's uh, uh, awesome wizarding prank shop. And it's just a real privilege. But mm -hmm. old Harry has the damnedest time finding somebody to sign that form form. Not even the Minister of Magic, Cornelius Fudge, who I'd really like to talk about too, will sign that for him. And so what did y'all think about that? What did you think about this sort of like big opportunity or developmental task that Harry's just sort of, he's left out of the loop on? Uh, yeah, he's, well, he's got his, um, his plan worked out, right, in the beginning there where he's going to get Uncle Vernon to sign it if he remembers to say that he's um, at Uncle, um, at, sorry, St. Brutus's school <laughs> uh, for hopeless cases. But, but then um, as much as he tries to, you know, just think about the, the handbook of do-it-yourself broom care whenever Aunt Marge is <laughs> buttons, right? He can't, <laughs> he can't help but, um, you know, turn her into a giant balloon or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so that falls through, you know? And then he seems to be like, completely at a loss like Hogsmeade is the first thing from his mind he doesn't know how he's gonna just survive until school starts um so it's interesting how quickly he goes from worrying about like this new privilege to worrying about like getting to school at all um how how, how yeah, yeah. He drops second, from second. That. yeah no can I just jump in and say I think Alex at before the before we hopped on the call, you made an interest. You posited something interesting about how Hogsmeade is something that kids can get access to. You know, if they have like a parent at home, is it like this? Is it this like representation of some something that he doesn't have by virtue of his orphanness? Right. And I don't. I don't know so much of the symbolism of that, though. I'd, I'd be keen to learn more of what you meant by that. But yeah, I do think. I do think that one thing that we see in this scene is Harry suffers a very extreme consequence, a loss of the potential privilege. And to your point, Wes, earlier, um, he's sort of, he's, he's forced on the run. He's forced into sort of a dangerous circumstance. Yes. I mean, getting on a bus where you have to lie about who you are and it's the yeah. nighttime, not to mention the dog and, you know um and it's all because he lost his temper right over something that i think a lot of kids would lose their temper over and i wonder if maybe a more like less symbolic and more just real world primary world um uh connection to that would be that kids who are in 
more broken circumstances mm. um, suffer the consequences of something seemingly ordinary or normal, but at such an extreme, in such an extreme way. So I'm just thinking like um, a snow day, for example. A snow day is an enormous annoyance for a kid or for, uh, it's not, sorry, it's like a, a place of deep joy for a child. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but for a for a parent who works, shall we say, a snow day is kind of annoying. Because like, what are you going to do with your kid? But yeah. for a student who relies on free and reduced lunch and breakfast to get three full meals a day, a snow day is actually like a deep, extreme turn for the worse mm -hmm. that uh, that like when you're on the margins of society you just experience these external things with much greater intensity and again this is not an external thing for Harry this is an internal thing he lost his temper so should that really I mean how many times do kids lose their tempers all the time but when <laughs> but when I guess I'm try I'm having a hard time articulating it very succinctly, but it it just sort of seems like I like that idea that Hogsmeade was this place that he wasn't able to go because of this uh, because he doesn't have the family unit. But why is it exactly? It's that yeah he's a, he's a marginalized kid, and and when you're marginalized, small things matter a lot more than. Mm -hmm than they do for a lot of other families or kids from normal families. Well, it's interesting. I want to, I want to think about that from that angle because there are just a couple of things. I'm, I might see it in this way that, um, that what Harry represents is how an orphan or somebody not with a complete family views a situation in a different way from somebody who has the complete. Mm. And so just as sort of mythological amplifications, people who also have trouble with rage and come from incomplete families would be Achilleus, whose rage begins Western literature, who grows up without his mother, and in fact is raised by a centaur, a mythological creature, not his father, uh, which means that he essentially was an orphan. Um, and, and he shows it in his sort of immature behavior, his inability to think about the future at times in ways that Harry manifests himself, thinking himself an exception to certain rules that other people perhaps with full families, well know our rules and will be, um, uh, will be followed and rewarded. Mm -hmm. uh, but also the example of Aeneas from the Aeneid in the very end of that text. And so perhaps Virgil suggesting that he's ending Western literature or having the final moment. Uh, uh, fortunately, mm -hmm. perhaps for him, Dante showed up afterwards. But he has Aeneas given to rage, who himself was a, a, a child of Anchises, but also Aphrodite, meaning that he did not have a mother. And so he also mm -hmm. gets into rage and thinks in the short term, kills a potential ally just to give in to that. And so I think that theme of coming from a broken circumstance and uh, because of that being more susceptible to the potentially more powerful manifestations of rage in your life, keeping that from potential success would be a major, major mythological theme to, to light on here because what I think that would suggest is that if you are in a broken circumstance, everything is harder. However, if you can not give in to rage, you can be more successful in life. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I, it's yeah. almost as though, it's almost as though, though, you know, I mean, this isn't necessarily true the other way around, but it's almost as though, is there something about like, I don't know. I don't know that necessarily you need like a two-parent household for this to be the case, but is it necessary? Or to you know, are there certain things that we learn in a family hmm. that are really that are all the more difficult for you to learn somewhere else? And I think your point that like Harry really struggles with rules, and it's odd because he was like subjected to so many tortures right. living it with the Dursleys, but. But he wasn't really taught to distinguish between what are the rules that you absolutely have to follow uh, and what are the rules that you can sort of bend, right? And I'm just thinking good. about my own family life growing up that there were varying levels of rules and varying levels of interventions and all of that. And, and 
maybe not having, yeah, maybe not having like that, that relatively normal family. I mean, what, who is it? Tolstoy who says like, all happy families are alike. Every unhappy family is, a, is unique in its own way. I'm uh, paraphrasing, but I think it's, <laughs> I think it's the beginning of like war and peace or something like that. But, um, that he, he, like, he's not raised with the capacity to distinguish those things. So eventually when he does navigate his way into Hogsmeade, it is through like a complete repudiation of rules and, and mm -hmm. pure cleverness and mischief for him to get there. Like Tom Riddle. Um, oddly, yes, I suppose. Yeah. Anyway, I, I think that that's an interesting line of thought. I'd never thought of the Achilles and Aeneas connection. So those are, that's really apt. Well, just something to add to that. Um, and I'm not trying to cut you out here, Wes. I, I, I want to hear what you have to say on this too. But um, I, I, I was very tempted to use a personal example about my own self. I do come from myself a broken family. And both of you having known me at St. John's, Understanding the micro strategies and, and sort of micro behaviors that build trust between people that you have to do in order to maintain, you know, social contact with people and maintain relationships were very hard for me to learn, which led to me dealing with a lot of rage. Because, you know, when you cascade, when you don't have those sort of behavioral strategies for how to appropriately act in a situation, you, uh, it's very easy to hit an emotional reaction. And especially for like a young guy, that's often like an angry response and so i i understand the aeneas the aeneas myth and the achilles or achilles myth appeal to me precisely because i felt that um but also to your point about um about sort of the broken family i'm sorry i went on that tangent and i'm i'm, I'm losing my actual train of thought um it's funny emotions first thinking but um <laughs> um oh i'm sorry sarah what was the last thing that you said sorry that i i have to, i've been doing this all day oh just like like Scales of, of rules, like, is what I was talking about, that uh, there are certain rules that you learn that you can break or bend, and then there are certain oh, rules. Oh, yes. So, yeah, so I was going to say that we should look to the families that we have in, in uh, the Harry Potter verse as examples then, like the Weasleys, because I think we learn what Harry learns from them, and something that I don't think I've ever noticed him doing and this is sort of interesting because I can see this in my own life is that his friends, because they're well socialized and have these families that have taught them sort of how to share, send him gifts. I, I don't know that I ever see it mentioned that he sends them gifts or remembers their birthdays, but they make a really big right. point of contacting him. And each one of them also says, hey, don't let the muggles get you down. They know he's in a bad situation. So it's almost like he doesn't have those social niceties that they've learned. Uh, and so they give him the benefit of the doubt because he's a little more raw, like you're saying. Um, what, 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 it sounded like you were saying something, Wes. I'm sorry. Oh, well, uh, I was interested in, in the Marge side of things here. Oh, yes. Um, and how, how that would fit in with the, uh, like the epic examples of uh, Achilles having a, a prize taken from him. Right. And Aeneas, he's enraged as he sees, right, like, again, something that reminds him of something that has been taken away, yes. um, palace, isn't it? And so, yes. um, so in this case, what Marge is taking away from Harry seems to be uh, the truth about his family, right, and about himself, mm. too, like, oh, he has, to, he has to put up this facade, and he ultimately, I think it's probably ultimately good that he doesn't, you know, keep lying, and, and eventually... Um, right. he, he, he's giving into his anger here. I, I don't know that. Wes? Yeah, Wes, you sort of trailed off there about 10 seconds ago. Are you still here? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I think it just dropped a little bit, but that's yeah. all I was saying. Yeah. Will you say it one more time, please? Uh, yeah, so that um, that uh, Marge is taking away from him his um, his truth of his family and of his uh, his own magical side of himself, right? Right, um, and 
you were saying he sort of rightfully explodes, like it's a good thing. Yeah, right. Which, as yes. a reader, it is very cathartic that he finally lets loose after he's been holding this. It sort of seems like a lowly deal at first, right? Like he's like getting this functional thing, but he has to deal with the indignities of the untrue. Yeah. And it's like, it's not a good deal. Like when I feel it right now, my 12 year old self is like, that's a crappy deal. Don't do it, Harry. Mm -hmm. And I can't believe you did it for so long. And you know what? She got exactly what she deserved. People are pretty good about getting what they deserve. Lucius losing his, his uh, house elf. And later what we'll see Professor Umbridge get is, well, that's mythological in scope too. I'll talk about the last of this and the centaurs and uh, the attempted abduction there. <laughs> but um, yeah, but yeah. I, yeah. Just, I think the, w the way that she gets hers, she gets what she deserves. Is like such a nice manifest or such a nice image for what he's feeling, right? She's like, a windbag. She literally, she literally blows up, right? Like, oh yeah, not, not not into many pieces, but she does like, she she gets blown up, <laughs> um, and yes. I think I mean that's what he is doing emotionally, and yes. I think you're right, Wes. I think that his anger is righteous, but. I I, also, I guess I just I think it's interesting that also he he's he's getting gifts. I guess I never really noticed that we only hear about Harry's birthday and Harry receiving gifts. It's so unhobbit like, but um, <laughs> that uh, can't wait that, for that. Wait, tune in, listen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but that, but both. Hermione and Ron, who come from very different families, Hermione's an only child and a muggle. Ron is one of many and magic. And, and that, like, I think that means that families can look like a lot of different things, but that there's, so there's no one way for a family to look per se, but that Harry's family or, you know, so-called family, they have like, um, they punted on their responsibilities because, because Marge is part of the problem, but the other part of the problem is like Vernon and Petunia perpetuating lies about their own family members, right? To, mm -hmm. to basically lie to their own family. Right. And I think that, you know, that to me is a, like a, like a toxic element of their family that again, Vernon deserves all of the things that he gets. I don't know so much about Petunia, but um, that's yeah. I, I just I think it's weird. I think it's interesting what we're lighting on that these two young kids seem to, by nature, do these things for Harry, um, and and they come from such different backgrounds. Um, yeah, and yeah. I, yeah. I do want to get into that because I think. The, the idea that families can look in a total different way, one different from another, or kind of like how teams can look in many different ways, but they still accomplish the same goal. So potentially you think of a family as a unit that's meant to encourage a child optimally so that they have the most potential success in terms of, I don't know, adaptation and skill development growing up, that uh, so long as the family does that, that they're really going gold. But something you said about Harry's family is that they're based on a lie, that they keep up appearances. They lie about the death of Harry's uh, uh, mother and father. They lie about what they were. They lie about where Harry's going. They're liars. And that's something I never noticed myself until you brought it up just now. And that I wonder to what extent Lord Voldemort, the magical principle of evil or embodiment of evil in this world, is the embodiment of the lie that Harry's nuclear family tells at home, which is about his mm. true nature and which they refuse to see, and that that's sort of like the ultimate lie, the lie that they tell him to keep him from understanding and fully manifesting himself. Um, and uh, in some ways, and I'm not trying to make this point really strongly, it did, it did strike me as some of this writing was like sort of for like a young, like a young gay male or something like that. And I, mm. I'm not trying to say that it's only that or, or that it can be reduced to that, but there is a strong element of, uh, and that just, I think that sort of lifestyle seems to have the spotlight right now. That, um, that like there's somebody whose nature is not understood by the family, who's trying to understand himself and is trying to branch out and learn about himself, who's being totally repressed and is ashamed of by the family. And I think, I think there are other examples, but uh, 
I don't know. That just jumped into my head as well. Um, we don't. Mm. Need, but but the lie, even more than that idea, because that was a tangent, is um, it, it's almost as if that's what's most toxic about the family, right? If they could just recognize Harry, let him out of the cupboard, as it were, um, uh, which is very similar to a closet. Uh, if they could let him out of that, then and recognize his existence and recognize him for what he was. It's almost like, I mean, who are even these people that they're so worried about the opinions of? You never see them have guests, except for a boss from employment and Marge. Um, not that we get a ton of, but and we get full summers at Privet Drive, right? So mm -hmm. even their desire to keep up appearances seems to be, in some idea, uh, uh, a function of them trying to maintain a lie. The lie that people care about how they look and that people people's opinions about how they look should dictate how they treat an anomaly within their own home, their own flesh and blood. And that, that strikes me as sort of getting, getting at least one of the valves of the heart of the matter with this text. Like if this family mistreats him because they don't understand him. And if they were just to open up to him or, or encourage him like Hermione's family has done for her, even though she's of course this strange wizard, not, not a muggle dentist, not a boring job. I mean, the idea seems to be that the most boring muggle job is being a dentist, right? You like actually physically take plaque off someone's teeth and much more. But it just, it's not as magical as, you know, using a wand and making poof, things appear. Though, of course, you know, it's a doctor level degree and I have a lot of appreciation for dentists. That said, Hermione is encouraged. Harry is repressed um, and suppressed. And uh, I just wonder if it's a comment sort of in that vein that, it doesn't matter how anomalous someone in your family is, you have to make it work with them. And that's the most important thing in the world. Mm. Um, yeah, what do y'all think about that? I don't know, it's a, again, another first pass approximation. Uh, well, I think, think about it from uh, Dudley's point of view here, right? Like how much he is um, fawned upon by his mother and his aunt. Um, why? Because he's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But so it's like, it's emphasized so much how um, how he's like, um, got some meat on his bones. You know, he's like a proper sized um, little yeah. version of his father, right? And and that's talked about also in terms of Marge's um, breeding of her dogs, right? So there's again that. Um, that racial or um, racist element that's kind of brought in under the guise of the um, dog breeding, right? That yes. she says bad blood will out. Um, so it's not in the context of mudbloods exactly, right? Um, but, but it's the same kind of thing and, and the same idea that you can sort of just know everything about a person based on their, their um, parentage. Right. You, you know, I thought that was interesting that like, what's an, I saw more of a parallel, and especially now as we're having this conversation, there's a there's more of a parallel between Marge and the Malfoys yes. than there is between the Malfoys and the Weasleys. Right. Um, and there's more of a parallel between the Weasleys and the Grangers than there is between the Grangers and the Dursleys. And see, I you think know, that's so exactly again, the point. yeah. There's to, to this idea that like. I think I think what that does is it disproves the idea of blood as as like a relevant concern in evaluating somebody's actual worth. Um, what it certainly does, though, I think is like I don't know. It's um, uh, it's not as though where you come from isn't important, but like Dumbledore says, it's not who we are, but our choices. And I think, Alex, you said before, like, if your family, your family is good, if it sets you up to, you know, achieve maximum success or whatever. But I would say that, like, if it sets you up to have healthy human relationships. That's you know, certainly an important part of success. I mean, we deal with humans all time, yeah. all days. And I agree with that completely. Something interesting about what you noticed about how the families can look so different, but they, they each seem to be having success. Ron's being poor, but with many children, and they're being, being magical, but then winning the lottery and, being, and having this awesome trip and thus being a successful family, whereas Hermione's family seems to be very, you know, sort of economically sound, stable, smart, 
muggle lifestyle, like the opposite sort of lifestyle for Mons, but still producing a very uh, magical child. Uh, there's, there's this mm-hmm. series of studies that Dr. Jordan B. Peterson brings up called the Scandinavian studies, where they, they figured out that there are bigger differences within in-groups than there are between groups. So like say within the Scandin- within like say personalities in Iceland, you will have a bigger range of personality difference than the differences between say Icelandic people and say Finnish people, indicating that the more robust a group is, the more differentiated the people within it become. And you could, if that happens at a population level, obviously that happens at a family level as well, indicating mm-hmm that the best way to adapt is to adapt to the actual situation and the personalities of the people within the group because there that is the rule. It doesn't matter what your blood is or that's not what determines your type. It, your function within a living group is what, uh, to a large extent, determines your type and e- efficacy. I mean, the, the Weasleys are so differentiated and different because they are part of a very differentiated and different family that has a need for many different sorts of skills in order to maintain mm-hmm. itself. Um, it just makes sense to me that if you're, if you're in group, whether that be a nation or a family or like a group of teachers for employment, um, the more, whatever it is that they need seems to be what gets developed. And that rather than seeing things from sort of a mechanistic or sort of willful we will tell you what you should be sort of traditional uh, uh, perspective on things. I think the most traditional, most logical and, and most like even evolutionary perspective on this is that we need the people that can do the jobs that are necessary right now. And that seems to be what groups are good at producing. Um, and hmm. that, that seems to be what both these very different families have produced, which makes them in my eyes successful. Um, and that's what leads to like sort of a successful society, whereas the Dursleys have not accepted the specific and special gifts of Harry, and thus have not accepted the conditions in the world that he has he has uh, he has developed or or been born in order to address. And apparently, those conditions are pretty big because he's supposed to fight Lord freaking Voldemort, which means <laughs> better not repress him, right? Like he he has the greatest task of them all. Uh, he's got mm-hmm. to take the ring of power to, you know, Mount Doom. He's got the biggest task. And so it is the biggest problem that he is, <laughs> he goes unrecognized by his family because uh, it's as if he exists to, to address the problem which they make of his existence for themselves. Well, so can I, yeah. can I posit something else then? Um, because I know we've been talking about the Dursleys as Harry's family, but just sort of picking up on where we started this, which was with like the, the three owls. Yes. Um, and considering these three people who sent him all gifts for his birthday, you can have a family that you're related to right. and, and that's great, but you can also like, you can cultivate a new family, not that one that replaces your blood family unless you want it to, I guess, but I know people talk about choosing your family, your friends or the family you choose, something cliche like that that you stitch on a pillow or whatever. But the point, that the idea that he gets these owls, all, all three of which look different, all three of the letters have different scripts, have different, like you said before, they have different um, endearments at the end. Um, they have different content, different gifts. And I wonder if there's something to be said for like, well, it's kind of good that they all got them something different, that Hermione's gift was so much different than, than Ron's gift. Like there is, there's a, just to your point earlier about, about that, like that research that there's like, there's a utility and almost like a, a necessity for their, this what looks like a, a strange and burgeoning new family for him. Right. Because um, uh, I think by the end, certainly Hermione is more sisterly than she is romantic. Right. But, um, and at a time in their lives when 
like biologically everything is so charged with boys and girls and cooties and crushes that really doesn't come up with them the two of them which is interesting like it doesn't it's only there if you really really want to look for it but it's barely there to begin with between the two of those like that there's something about their friendship and then you add in Hagrid as kind of this like odd big brother type <laughs> um and I just I would offer yeah like really really big brother um like the end of Hermione's letter where she she says like this it's the same PS as Ron's it's just delivered so much differently like Percy is head boy. I think he's really happy about it. I don't think Ron is. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, like, which is the subtext of Ron's statement, but he just doesn't say it. Um, <laughs> um, and I just, it's the same idea delivered in a different way. And I think maybe that's to your point, Alex, yes. about kind of the importance of the diversification within a group and how that strengthens the group for the task at hand, whatever that task might be. Yes. Yeah. And I agree. And I was just making a connection and I wonder what you think about this, Wes, because apparently I'm trying to connect everything to Voldemort today because perhaps everything is connected to Voldemort, but just what the point that Sarah just made about the choosing your family. And that seems to be the specifically human sort of capacity that you can develop in group with somebody based on shared interests or skills or talents, not just blood. Right. And in fact, mm -hmm. we're figuring out in that the highest abstraction of an in-group is a society. And of course, what draws us together is, and this is, is the Constitution in America, is the series of ideas and values that we agree on. And this is Constitution Day in America for our British listeners. And it is September 17th, and so we're very proud of that, and 39 signers of that. Um, uh, sorry, though, Gordon, but we're good friends now. And sometimes you just need a short break. Um, but obviously, we love Harry Potter. Um, but... Just something about Harry, even though he doesn't have these sort of skills yet, or, or potentially we're supposing he did, might not have the skills that somebody who grew up in a functioning family or an encouraging family has, is that his choice seems to be to try and create the new family, right? Just like he makes it at Hogwarts. He makes it with the Weasleys. He makes it with the Quidditch team. He makes it with Hagrid. He's trying to make connections. He seems in this way opposite from Tom Riddle, who himself was very clever and tried to work through his cleverness to get past the fact that he was an orphan. And also loved Hogwarts because it got him away from the muggle world. But what he chose to do was to break apart families through killing people, through murders and terror, and to break apart himself through what we'll soon find out are called the Horcruxes. He, he seems to have, rather than recognizing the fact that he was limited by something, by the fact that he was uh, an orphan, or that he, he would always feel pain for not having something that those around him had, even who were weaker than he was, that even magic could not cure this pain, he tries to sort of deny his nature, right? He tries to break himself apart, turn himself into something new, something no longer subject to the rules of nature or humanity, something purely magical. Whereas what Harry seems to realize is that magic is just another avenue by which to connect to people. That the real magic is, you know, friendship, connecting, developing that in group, being pro-social, and that that's living in accordance with like sort of your, your nature or your nervous system because you, you're not always emotionally dysregulated. You don't have to go to the sort of extent that Voldemort, perhaps also as an illusion for someone who breaks apart their life through, say, drug use, uh, that he goes in order to, he doesn't go to the extents that Voldemort goes to in order to limit the pain he feels due to the fact that he comes from a family that mistreats him. Um, and it's almost like he's just a different way of dealing with that sort of childhood trauma, that you don't have to give in to the violence, that you, you, you can become more, even if, even if you don't start with the same set that everybody has, there is a way out. It's, it's like he's a me message of hope. Uh, just to bring that up again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I think it's, it's interesting to see that comparison, which isn't by any means like uh, explicit here in the, in the early parts, but right. we do see that Harry's, doing some Voldemortish things here, like, um, you know, trying to uh, hide who he, who he really is and, um, and his anger gets the better of him and, and he's driven out of this um, kind of conformist uh, fake family, blood family and, and back to the, 
um, back to the wizarding world where his real family ends up being. Uh, and, and I find that the threshold of this is really interesting, right? Where he's out on the sidewalk and there's the, um, the shadow there, the dog. Yes. Right. And also on the cover as a shadow, though we don't yet know that. Right. There's a bunch of shadows on the cover this time. And, and so he's, um, he's got, again, this kind of, um, intimation of this dark thing, um, mm. which potentially it's not like it, it, yeah it's not it's not a totally new thing but it's a different version of the you know the dark uh wizards that seem to be um pursuing him all times um and we hear this story for the first time in this case about Sirius Black we hear it first through the muggles uh perspective which I thought was really interesting yeah. um as as kind of a a thing that's beyond their understanding yeah. right um and it turns out that it's it's really close to home for Harry, um, not evil at all. Right, and just something interesting about him in terms of mythological parallels, he shows up as what will later be astrologically called the Grimm, which is an interesting comment within the book about the interpretation of literature, sort of seeming to be the author poking fun at the attempt to uh, understand what it is the author represents. And, uh, there are so many charlatans, but that's not what's happening here. So we'll show Rowling. So hopefully she listens in soon. Um, but the Grimm is interesting as a dog, as a shadowy dog, because that reminds me not only of Cerberus as sort of a guardian to the underworld, indicating that perhaps there will be a revealed aspect of the dark underworld of the, of the magical world, or the dark underbelly of the underworld will continue to reveal its many faces to Harry. Uh, and even in more depth and detail as the books progress, just as we began to see it with the Chamber of Secrets last, uh, last time and uh, within the professor himself, Pearl, in the first time, but um, in the first book, excuse me. Um, but also it makes me think of uh, the myth of Acteon. Acteon was a, a young man who mm -hmm. accidentally saw the new Diana or Artemis and then was turned into a deer and had his own dogs turn on him and rip him apart. Um, and so I wonder to what extent the, the dog myth in this or dog symbol in this case, the shadowy dog is sort of like, like sort of a furies aspect, like the thoughts or emotions, which are threatening to close in on Harry and rip him apart. Now that he is away from the protection of the home, we've heard about the magic of the protection of the Dursley's home. And we've taken that for granted as sort of just keeping Voldemort away. But I think part of the magic of it is part of the magic of known territory, part of the magic of the home, that it keeps your emotions regulated. Because the second you're out and you don't know where to go, you're lost. You're in a totally different place. And dark emotions threaten to take you over. And then all of a sudden, Hermes or, or the scarlet and gold bus, and uh, you're pulled out of trouble. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah. Uh, yeah, and it takes you to Diagon Alley, which is more and more, it's funny because Diagon, like diagonal, a rational place, a place that makes sense, other known territory. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. So yeah, the night bus is such an interesting scene. What did you all make of that? Like there's this, this guy who's sort of cockney, he's got accent like Hagrid. So we know that this is not a high status job. Um, but I, I, I wonder if we're supposed to feel like Harry is threatened if he gets expelled, this is going to be his job. I guess he does actually make explicitly that connection, right? And that there's a really bumpy ride and nobody seems to enjoy getting off. And these guys aren't that great at their job, but they do talk a lot. What did, what did you all think about this night bus? I mean, it, it, there is a, a sense of adventure and thrill that goes along with it. Yeah, well, it's a kind of a counterpart to the, um, the Scarlet Hog, Hogsworth Express, right? Ah. Um, it's, it's, even more, it's even more unexpected, right? He didn't get any letters about meeting this bus. It just appears when right. he... Uh, accidentally puts out his hand for it um, and is in need, right? Like cat bus in Totoro. <laughs> <laughs> or like the uh, the room of requirement, which ah. we'll, we'll encounter a bit later, right? So there, there's something about like wizards having put in these um, these safeguards for themselves and maybe yes. for wizards who don't know about them, they're still going to help them out, right? And ah. then yeah, So I, I found that kind of cool. And I think Sirius Black himself is a lot like that, right? He's sort of this thing in the background, the godfather, this person who's there in case something happens, um, who Harry doesn't even know about. Um, and yeah. it's ironic, it's really ironic that the bus appears 
and takes him away from <laughs> meeting Sirius Black finally. So. So, so do you think, I mean, because I, I think, think Cornelius Fudge is another example of that sort of father and great father in the background who is doing things, he taking care of things that Harry doesn't know. Like he gets his room, he makes sure that his luggage is going to come, he takes care of his family situation, he deflates his marge. Uh, I, I do, and I just want to say this quickly and then I'll let you go, Sarah. It's, uh, I, I wonder to what extent these are manifestations of the laws, like a laws of a society. You mostly don't see them, but they're certainly working mm. to protect you at all times, even though you don't fully understand them. And so that maybe the laws then are a symbol of the sort of great father or the protections of society or known territory. Um, I don't know. It's very interesting what you just said, Wes. But yeah, Sarah, where are we going? I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I, I thought that was really interesting. Um, what you just said, Wes, the, the, the interesting, like that the night bus is like this interesting uh, foil or derivative maybe of the Hogwarts Express. Um, it seems like a lot more magical than the Hogwarts Express because of the way that it moves throughout mm. the space, right? It seems It seems to be more than just taking you to school. Right, which is what the Hogwarts Express seems to just be like the way that they go to school and the magic is in the platform and how mm -hmm. they go from nine to ten and all of that. But and the it's bus like a city seems version. to have Yeah, the bus seems to have like a lot more magic. Um and magic that he doesn't know. I think it's interesting that he chooses to give like a fake name. Um <laughs> Because he is, because it's the unknown, because he's a little scared. But um, he, I, I think that there is something about the, it's, it's something that we've touched on in the past about like what this, what this series has to say about learning and when you, like there's a danger in exploring or encountering something that you don't know. Yes. Um, and and I think the night bus is a good example of that. I think the circumstances under which Harry finds himself there um, are, he doesn't know what his future holds. I mean, he thinks he's expelled. Yes. What would his job look like? How would he still live in this world? Um, where would he live? All of those things. And it all turns out okay, right? It all turns out okay in the end. The same is true for, he doesn't know what the dog is. Eventually, he doesn't know who Sirius Black is to him. And it all, like, stepping onto the bus or stepping into the dark or stepping into this place of unknown is really scary, but it all turns out okay for him. And I think, I mean, I think that that's, a, that's sort of been sort of an abiding theme here as well. But it, it turns out okay because I think partially because of his disposition. So Alex, previously you were saying how like he makes different choices than Voldemort did when he was a kid, right? Right. He he has a similar a similar circumstance and he chooses differently. What I think the whole situation with Hogsmeade and the Hogsmeade letter and then getting booted out of the Dursleys and having to escape going on this sketchy bus. I don't know if you guys have been on city buses or, like in your sure. towns, but like I I didn't get like I didn't get the vibe that this was like a place that he felt deep safety. <laughs> but um but just um yes it's important that he makes different choices than Voldemort, but I think the fact that he is set back by by things that he would, I mean, I think, I, I, how do I phrase this? Um, I'm trying to, to phrase it in Harry Potter terms and not think about the analog within the modern world that like, yes, your choices matter, but also it's important to recognize that he's in a really, really like unfair, unequal circumstance for that like 13 year olds in other circumstances, don't have to deal with this. They don't have to get on the creepy, the creepy night bus. And that's, talk right. With these. that's right. And that's really interesting because how he summons the night you bus. Is so, yes, his choices matter, but like, but nobody should be have to make. Right. Nobody right. should be and having to make those choices. Agreed. Um, yeah. And to that point, how yeah. he summons the night bus, the sort of psychopomp that gets him 
through the city. Yeah. And I sort of see the night bus as sort of the dingy city equivalent to the beautiful countryside Hogwarts Express. That they're both sort of magical, but they suit the environment in which they manifest. They both mm. serve the end for which they're created. And so the night bus has to be sort of gross and it has gross city people rather than wonderful young children, right? And having ridden the bus in Milwaukee for nine straight months, I, that's not so unfair. And in fact, actually the witches on that bus are probably much better, uh, <laughs> doing much better than the people on the Milwaukee buses that I went through the north side of town with. Um, nine straight months, you know, it was a long time. And so um, what Harry, uh, Harry summons the bus through his wand, which strikes me as a symbol of his intellect. He keeps his head and thus, even though he's in a bad situation, yeah. what he does is he produces a unique, uh, uh, unique solution to the situation, a way to get from known territory through unknown territory to known territory again. And then, in fact, the bus is called night bus, right? And the idea of a knight being like a yeah. person you pay to protect you, right? Or like a noble man who will protect you. And so I, I sort of connect that to the idea of the Patronus that will come out later, the idea that the person who can protect you from darkness is you with a defined thought of light. Um, uh, and so again, we see like sort of a foreshadowing. Ooh, I like and, that. and I saw you bringing that foreshadowing up and that, and I just thought of that. So I'm glad good. And, um, uh, because you know, I have so many thoughts when I'm talking to y'all, it's like, we're all shining our Patronus lights out and we're destroying the dementors together. That's really a beautiful thought. <laughs> um, and, um, that's a, I think that's that idea that the, uh, summoning the night bus as his way of like protecting himself from the grim as a foreshadowing for the dementors a really really fine point um, yeah just lighted upon there's so much stuck out my wand in, in, there's so much foreshadowing in these first few chapters yes. it's really quite interesting. well that's that's maybe a question i should ask to you wes um and then uh y'all skin i know it's all late for all of us but i gotta go right after this because i've got some cold chinese food to eat um, and, uh, <laughs> um, is that, oh no, what did, uh, how am I forgetting this question? Right. As I'm about to ask it all talking about Chinese changed my motivational systems, thinking about getting hungry. Um, <laughs> as Odysseus says, the, the belly is an ignoble master and truly an ignoble master. Um, uh, uh, but I was going to ask about night bus or, or no, no, uh, the, oh yeah, foreshadowing, excuse me. Yeah, so Wes, something that we were sort of griping about in the last book was that we, it sort of seemed like we were circling around saying, especially you and I, the idea that to some extent it seemed like a cookie cutter repetition of the first book that she sort of artificially introduced some new elements into that never quite felt natural and didn't hit with the same effect as the first one. And even if we don't still believe that, it kind of seemed like we were saying that in former podcasts. So given that there's so much potentially conscious foreshadowing in the beginning of this book. Do you think that this third book sort of starts the beginning of a new stage of the project or a new vision of the project? Is she now like manifesting herself rolling the author as like successful author who knows she's going to write seven books and now mm. is comfortable doing her best rather than trying to produce another sort of hit or is she changing the mode because now there's so much material that she can make conscious connections or even unconsciously bridge connections between the books and are we starting to sort of get a sense for that now in the third the third iteration of this seven part series yeah i i feel that there's there's an interesting way in which this book does uh follow a similar structure and hit similar notes with with variations um in some ways right serious black is like an even scarier Voldemort figure because he is apparently like laughing about killing 13 people with one curse. Yes. So, but then on the other hand, uh, this is something my dad pointed out to me when I was like just reading these for the first time uh, with him. He noticed that Sirius Black's name actually appears in the very first chapter of the first book because he's the one that Hagrid borrows the motorcycle from. Yes. Right. Yes. And, and that's something I would never have noticed. Um, maybe even like rereading the books over and over, but from talking to someone else who was reading them, he pointed that out to me and I thought that was really interesting. And um, that in that, in that little way, you know, whether conscious or not, um, Rowling planted this seed, which she can then go back and, and work with and create something that does have the effect of weaving really beautifully and intricately into um, the past books while also pointing forward to all this new stuff that she's coming up with, right? Like, you know, 
she keeps alluding to the uh, the magic of the Egyptians, which to my knowledge, she hasn't actually gone back and developed yet. But she she keeps throwing things forwards as well into like the you know incredible potential of imagination in this like, world. Like so. Aristotle with the metaphysics, this coming later, or Dante with the ineffable. It's like okay, well this more this is coming, this is coming, but it's coming soon. It's sort of like the initial Christian method message, right? The gospel. Yeah. Like it's coming, it's coming, everything is coming. And that does seem to be a part of the process of living, right? That you build on the past in the present in order to create the, the ideal future. And that um, it's like we're starting to get a vision of the greater whole and that it's actually far more than we expected, right? This isn't just some adventure uh, mystery fantasy novel. This is a, this is a cultural phenomenon. This is, uh, this is, you know, a religious experience for some people. They go on these pilgrimages and camp out just like for star wars to, to get this book as fast as possible it's like this is this is insanely motivated behavior right uh like people are getting off their butts to sit in line to read a book that they read cover to cover and take the day off of work to do and then go into school or work the next day perfectly happy that is not normal behavior um <laughs> wouldn't it be great if it was yeah wouldn't it be just great well, I mean, if I, that was how. Yeah, I mean, I, I, no. I, I do think that that's why we create art and create magic and create things like this. I think that's why the pyramids exist because I would rather live in a world with pyramids than one that didn't have pyramids. I would rather live in a world with Harry Potter and great things like this. And, you know, I think that's why part of, you know, my patronus charm to this project is to try and light up on the beauties of the magical world or or what we call society and the, the many things that it provides for us i think that that's part of the true magic that transcends even a universe that has that has what we would call real magic and perhaps i don't know and this could go as a hypothesis too the greatest magic that exists ex exists across all genre and that's the magic of you know friendship and being amongst other humans and striving towards a good goal that brings people together against all the evils that try to tear you down um Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, and I'm not trying to be all September 11th about that, but I, I do see a sort of element of protecting the Tower of Babel in that effect, or in that in that way. And I did recently have to lecture on September 11th. It was a pride. It was I was proud to, of course. Um, but it's something I talked with about my students, and I told them about Dante, and I I told them that Dante would tell us to be very careful because he knew a Rome, and he knew what it was to be in Florence instead of Rome, a fractured state. And that he knew well the the cost of the falling tower, um, and so I don't know, I don't know. I'm glad that we have this magical world to share between us. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, y'all, do you have any closing thoughts before we uh, we cut off today? Uh, we we went past our 40 minute minute or our limit. I haven't bought the professional version yet, but Zoom let me know with about five minutes left that it was it was doing this one on. It was it was spotting us a few minutes. It was going to throw this on it 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 was uh it said unlimited minutes this first time so thank you father zoom <laughs> all right dumbledore no, was with good. us yeah maybe we'll have better luck with the technology this time around because you know things are different this isn't just a repeat of the site of the first book. <laughs> that's right ron ron's getting a new wand and we're getting some new tech yeah i think this is good they got a new wand because because they hit the jackpot and they have $15 to spend on Zoom. Um, yeah. And maybe we'll hit the jackpot too. Yeah, I think I will get that because I, I was having some issues even with my uh, two-person podcast with, uh, with Dr. Matt Roos on the Consilience podcast last weekend. Well, you know, it's funny. Now that this is going, I mean, we're still sort of like a band in a garage. But it's like now we're getting some, now we're getting into it. And now I'm investing some money into it. You know, there's just something to that. I think we do. We, do we want to do? We, do we want to do like the next three chapters, next two chapters? What do you think? Yeah, good question. Let me take a look right now. And I just noticed that one of the pictures is of Sirius Black looking in. Um, it looks like four and five are pretty serious in length. Um, yeah, we'll get. I think a lot happens too. Yeah. A lot happens. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, let's do four and five, um, and then we can do three after that because it looks like those are okay. similar to the same length of one, two, and three. But yeah, yeah, that that should be doable. And uh, 
oh, well, I'm just noticing that I'll post again for 22. So even she recognizes what she's doing. And repetition will be a major theme in this book, which is very interesting, thinking about time and patterns. Well, y'all, this, this is a pattern that just keeps getting better. I really appreciate this. I look forward to this every week. And I can't wait for the listeners to appreciate you just as much as I do. So. Me too. Um, I, I am exhausted and I have to go. Alex is hungry. Wes, are you, Both? are you thirsty or something? Are, are we hitting all three of Maslow's hierarchy of needs at the moment? I, um, I yeah, I, I'm feeling pretty good other than, you know, I got to go put some laundry away. How about that? Oh, terrible. Yeah. Our lives are really boring. Full of, full of snakes, full of snakes and chambers of secrets. I think you can find them anywhere. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, until right. soon, you guys. All right. And uh, we'll let the lesson, listeners know whether we get into that conference and whether we want to start doing videos with hats and cloaks on. Um, we just need to find those hats and cloaks. Or maybe sew them okay. ourselves. <laughs> All right. Project for next time. All right. Yeah. <laughs> See ya. See y'all. Bye. Good night.